Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and learn about the risks and rewards behind the success. Despite our name, we won't be playing any music during this podcast. We have instead chosen to talk to those people who are closest to our castaway, their friends and former colleagues. And this in itself creates a soundtrack to their career. Today we meet Richard Croft, founder and executive chairman of M7 Real Estate. Having been told by his own father, the renowned writer of Dad's Army, Hello Hello and Are You Being Served, three of the most popular British sitcoms of all time, that he was neither attractive enough nor talented enough to become an actor, Richard decided to turn his ambition and energy to other pursuits. Today, he runs a 5 billion pan-European real estate business with over 200 employees across 14 countries. Richard began his career at IO Group before starting his own business, Halverton, aged 35. Two and a half years later, he had grown the business from an idea formed by two blokes and a bottle of Riaka to an enterprise of 180 people with 10 offices across Europe. A serial entrepreneur, having sold Halverton in 2007, Richard then founded M7 at the peak of the global financial crisis. From humble beginnings as an operating partner specialising in UK industrial property, M7 has now grown into a formidable logistics investor and fund manager in its own right, as well as regularly working with some of the sharpest private equity investors around. Born and bred in Suffolk, and apparently generous to a fault, Richard is a long-standing supporter of several locally-based charities and an accelerator and incubator called Shout About Suffolk. Despite this generosity of spirit, one of Richard's favourite pastimes is shattering the dreams of family and friends on the croquet lawn, so much so that he has built his own lawn at home, next to the Pims Pavilion, I might add. Richard Croft, welcome to Desert Island Rift. Uh, Emily, thank you so much. What a charming introduction. Um, some of which was true, some of which was, um, well, totally missed out the bad bits of my career. So thank you very much for just editing it into successful highlights. It didn't mention the fact that in 2008, after I sold Halberton, uh, I got fired by it. And the reason that M7 got set up is that I was, um, my services were no longer required by the purchaser GPT. So. Uh, M7 was in fact born more out of necessity because I was out of work and I'd also lost all my money during the global financial crisis. And it was very kind of you not to mention that. Well, we've been kind, easing easing you into it. Um, but look, all of that and, and what you say makes you the perfect candidate for a podcast about risk. And I'd love to kick the conversation off with the big risk. We gatecrashed the last M7 board meeting before lockdown and took the opportunity when Richard was out of the room to speak to CEO David Everill, Jack Thoms, his head of investment management, Teresa Dyer, COO, and Andrew Jenkins, AJ, uh, director. Let's hear them talk about a risk that you all took. Project Bali, that was the deal where, again, the, the kind of the tension is that deal was being signed within the kind of room in terms of, and then the party that happened then afterwards was... Yeah. And it and got signed, signed really late, and so we were all there, everybody. And that was, what, probably 18 months after we yes. started? Yeah. I mean, we literally didn't didn't have anything. That was literally, do that deal or die, because the next day we wouldn't be able to pay the electricity bill. So we had an abort bill that was more than our working capital. We had to make a call as we were then trying to find the equity for this trade as to at what point do we stop, and or do you go past the point of no return? Were things really that close to the line? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think we wouldn't have, the deal happened late on Friday night, and it nearly didn't happen at all because uh, Westbrook, who were our partner on that, their server broke in New York, so they couldn't sign the contract. Uh, UBS, who was selling it to us, decided that they were selling it too cheaply. Uh, ben Goodry, who I know you've spoken to, he was the agent involved. No, I mean, we were, we were utterly, we'd run out of money. So without that deal, uh, we didn't have anything to manage, really. We had the joint venture with Europa, but that could have kept a few of us going because that was very small. And wasn't paying us a lot of fees. So now we had 18 people employed with pretty much no income. So without that deal, um, that we were utterly toast. So we're going to talk about M7 a little bit uh, later on, but I would love to know 
what your approach to risk is? Well, it's very different now. To, I mean, what it was, I, I, have, I think I have a reputation for being a risk taker. I'm actually not really. I mean, I've ended up taking risks, but more out of necessity than anything else. So when M7 was started, I always said, God, it was so risky to start a business with 18 people, no income. And you look back on it, you go, it was insane. But I didn't actually have a choice. I mean, I was out of work. I'd been fired by the company I'd founded. Um, and I was probably unemployable. I think one of the funniest stories I heard was when we asked um, we asked Tony Edgley, the non-executive director at M7, for his opinion on on you and, and, and your approach to risk. And, and he told us a story that I think sets the scene very well. It was, again, a, a, a nipping night. And he had got back to his hotel room and face-planted himself on his bed. And he had a 10 o'clock meeting. And at 9.30, his phone is ringing off the hook. Eventually, he, he responds and he picks up the phone and you're supposed to be down the road at 10 o'clock. Okay, I'm on my way. So he stands up and thinks, oh, that's good. I'm still in my suit. And as he's walking along that street that's one back from the Croisette, the name of which I forget, he glances left into a shop window and he stops and he looks at himself full length in the mirror. And what he sees is that he appears to have fallen into a bush at some point during the evening. He appears to have spilt inordinate amounts of red wine down his white shirt. So he sets off on his journey again towards the meeting. And at 10 o'clock, one of those very swanky, um, slightly Middle Eastern orientated men's boutique shops opens up. And in the window are a selection of sort of rather violently coloured jackets and crocodile shoes and, you know, belts that cost a, a, a thousand euros. And he walked in to the store and Crofty opened his arms out wide and looked at the man and just said, clothe me. That's, it's mostly true. I don't think I got to bed till six or seven. I think I only got to bed because T actually found me in the bush and managed to get me back to the to, to Teresa. And I'd fallen asleep. That's true in my clothes. But when I got the phone call saying I needed a bit of meeting, I'd been self-aware enough to know that I needed a shower. So I took off all the clothes that I was wearing and got in the shower shower. But for the reasons that I still don't understand, I then put back on the same clothes that I had actually got out of. So what made this worse is I had the opportunity to change into, you know, I had plenty of clothes in my room, but I didn't. I put on the same clothes. I would guess that I'm still not entirely on functioning well. And walking down the Rue d'Antibes, the Rue d'Antibes is the name of the road that I can remember. There was a sort of, one of the shop doors was open and it was sort of reflecting. And I was walking towards this guy who looked like he just had a disaster. And I thought, God, that's terrible. And as I walked a bit closer, I thought, oh my God, that's me. So I, I, that's why I got to the shop and the door was open. The door was open. And the door had sort of had reflected back at me. And I thought, yeah, I really ought to get changed before I go to a meeting. So I went in and the, the, the bit that me and I was saying, close me. That's true. Um, I, I, I did. But it was the time M7 wasn't a big success. I mean, I didn't have a lot of money at this time. And it didn't really occur to me that it was going to cost me thousands of euros. And it cost me thousands of euros. Anyways, so they took my clothes and, uh, and they clothed me. And I looked. I was pretty smart. And I got to the, I got, I got to the counter. And I said, well, how, how much is it? And he gave me the number. I mean, the, the number was shocking. And I got the giggles really, really badly because it just hadn't occurred to me that this was several thousand euros worth of expenditure. Anyway, so I paid and left. I wore those clothes for about three days straight. Um, and I've still, I've, I've still got, so it was a Canali jacket, which I still got. And over the last six or seven, about seven years ago, I, you know, as a result of all the travel and my life, I'd put on weight. And since lockdown, I've lost any stone in weight because of being able to exercise and I'm not spending hours on planes grazing, eating cakes. And so I've lost it away. And I can wear the jacket. And it's a really cool jacket, actually. And so it's, it's aged better than I have. So this is a man who is careful with risk. Well, but had I gone to that meeting looking like the man I was, you know, that meeting ended up being relatively successful, even though I could barely speak. And, you know, that mipping led to a couple of really quite big deals. Was I put it down to the jacket that I bought because it was so smart. And people thought, what a sophisticated guy. Probably. That's probably what happened. What a mover and shaker in those crocodile shoes. No, there were no crocodile shoes. He's in bad seven. But there were uh, Regine's uh, Canale jacket. Um, there was a little French scarf thing going on. Uh, an incredible 
and Bruno Canelli kind of in I mean, honestly, it was a great get-up. So look, moving from one type of clothing to the next, I want to play you Bill Sexton, EMEA president of Trimont. We spoke to him from the perspective of someone who took a risk on you. Let's have a listen. I remember coming home to my wife and two children under the age of six and breaking the news that I was going to go into business with this chap called Richard Croft. And Annabelle, my wife, saying one, asked me one question and one question only, will it work? And I had no doubt it would work. The inspiration was clear that this was going to work. So two years into that, having made that decision, coming home and being asked whether or not we could afford to buy clothes for our children by the said same wife and having to answer that I am absolutely convinced this is going to work. Uh, at the time seemed that we were all in, but I never had any doubt that it was going to work. And fortunately it did. But it was that never, never give up, never say die attitude of Richard that is so inspiring and, and drives everybody around him. Every book will tell you that M7 shouldn't have worked, but now look at it. It's a, it's a magnificent business, which is a testament to not only his, but all the people around him who have stuck together and built that, that business. So Bill is the cleverest man I've ever worked with, and that's with no absolute respect to all of the very clever people that I work with. But Bill is a very, very able man. And basically, Hamilton was born out of... I hope Bill takes this right way. The arrogance of both Bill and I, that we could do our jobs better than our respective bosses. And in fact, our respective bosses, uh, who will remain nameless, were driving us so mad with what we considered their inability to do the job as well as we would do it if we had it. Uh, we decided to go into business together. And I've got to tell you, it was a lot of fun. And he'll probably tell you that we basically, I, I'd had a bad round with my boss, who I think I can't remember the name of Bill's boss, which was the late, great John Sims. A bad round, I found Bill up and said, right, I'm done. Um, I need to go to the pub. And we spent all afternoon there, I think with three or four bottles of red wine. And what started off as just bitching about our bosses ended up with a very short fire plan that we were going to take over the world and uh, yeah, start a new business. And so I resigned that afternoon, I mean, relatively incoherently. Um, and then phoned Bill and said, oh, I've resigned. We're in. And he went, what? And I said, no, we're in. And to be fair to him, and this speaks volumes about the man, he then resigned and went, okay, what's the plan? I went, I have no idea. But, you know, we're going to take the two businesses we've been involved in and work out. We're going to launch a real estate asset management business. So originally, we were going to be called Sex and Croft Asset Management. And then we realized that's about scam. So that um, meant that we couldn't be called that. And I was driving from Stradbroke, the village I into Norwich Airport to go and got a plane to Amsterdam. And I drove past, maybe a little too fast, a village called Halton or a sign. And I thought it said Hamilton. I thought, what a great name. So I phoned Bill from the car and said, I've, I've got the name for the company. I don't have a business plan yet, but I've got the name and I call it Hamilton. And then we came up with this plan. There was a third partner, a guy, a wonderful man called Taco de Groot. And uh, Taco ran a family property company uh, called Cortona. And I knew that the owner, kind of wanted, again, another wonderful man called Philip de Hassan, would have wanted to sell it. And I suddenly had this idea, uh, well, Bill and I had this idea, of buying the company. And what we would do is we'd be able to get a funder to buy the assets. And we would then be able to buy the operation. So we did a sort of opco propco split. And so our first fund at Hamilton was actually with Citigroup, the company that Bill used to work for. They bought the assets for a fund. And we bought for a much lesser amount the platform uh, in the Netherlands. So we ended up immediately with a platform in the Netherlands and our first fund. And we got paid a very big fee. And that's how Hamilton got started. And you mentioned the the mistake of naming it. Um, yeah, well, Bill also has a, has a few things to say about the mistakes made along along the way. Let's uh, let's listen to Bill. What has probably changed most about Richard, and I think he'd be the first to admit this, is that the recognition that we're not always right as people. We do our best, but by the same token, we do make mistakes, and you have to learn from those. Uh, and Richard's been very good at learning from the mistakes that we've made, both in the good times and the bad times. What did we leave behind? Oh, we made plenty of mistakes. Um, we made a huge number of mistakes in, in Halverton. We took risks. Most of those fortunately paid off. But I think there are elements of a business that grows so rapidly that are left behind. And I think that paying attention to the smaller details and some of the operational infrastructure was, um, was not fit for purpose in many ways um, or not what it should have been. And I think there are lots of lessons there that uh, both of us have utilised in our subsequent careers. Uh, Bill's absolutely spot on. 
you know, I mean, to, to, to be honest, we were both young, uh, incredibly ambitious. Um, Howerton was for three years a joy, and then for the last, for the other year and a half, it was a horrendous experience, really. But it was because of the mistakes that we'd made. And when we set up M7, um, because, you know, M7 was born out of Howerton, so even the bill had left. Um, very important. We remained really good friends. The, the management team of M7 was the management team of Hamilton for all intents and purposes. We got everybody, um, we all agreed to write the list of all the things we got right in 2006, and all the things we got wrong. And since the beginning of 2009, of course, the list of things we got wrong was really, really, really long. And so M7 was born out of the idea that actually we could do better, we could manage risk better. So, you know, I think it's well known that we built our own tech business, Kakaiti, and that was due to management data. We started a business with no income and, and nothing with a debt team. And people said at the time, you know, and led by the incredibly talented and able Hugh Fraser, still, you know, the head of capital at, at M7, and, you know, one of the finest human beings in the world. And when it comes to debt, I think the greatest operator of them all. We didn't have any debt or indeed we didn't have any equity either. Um, but I was absolutely of the view that management of debt was going to be really, really key in the future because debt is, it isn't your friend. Gearing isn't your friend. It's like a chainsaw, actually. This is the best way to describe it. You can cut down forests with gearing. However, if you lose control, it will take off your head. So um, having a, a dedicated team that looks after all our relationships with the banks, and if you ask any of the banks of us, um, I think we would come across as the top one or two percent of borrowers because of the quality of information we provide, because of our focus on those relationships, and that's down to the lessons that, that we learned in, in the last crisis. And also the recognition that a business like ours benefits far more from a, from a wide team, a strong senior management uh, structure, than it does being you know, totally reliant on one, two, or even three people. I look at the organization, I couldn't be more proud to be associated with it, just because of the quality of people that are involved. You know. Well, someone said, he has a Rasputin-esque ability to attract and retain the talent of really good friends. It is a compliment. I mean, Rasputin. I think so. I mean, that's as backhanded compliment as, but yeah, I'll take it. I think you. I think you should take it. Um, so, look, we can't go any further without hearing the infamous story of the creation of M Seven. To hear that story, let's listen to your team at the board meeting. So M7 is called M7 because we are the Munich 7, that's how it first began. So this was back in October 2008, um, and it was a time of Expo Real. And I think the stand that we had was next to the stand of Hypo, and Hypo had gone bust, I think, on the Tuesday morning. So the fear that everybody saw um, as everything was starting to really melt in real time in front of us. And at that point, Richard, you know, there's only Richard could decide to close our, our very expensive stand because he said, well, no one's going to come here, and if, any, if they are what are they going to say to you, why don't we go to the pub? Um, and that was kind of how it all began. At the very beginning, there were seven of us who went to the pub to talk about what were we going to do as a result of all this chaos. Ended up being rather more than seven at the it pub. We picked up a end. lot of people during yeah. the day yes. and night. <laughs> it was huge. And it went on until the next day. And it was a, it, again, it was a very fun, extravagant evening. Um, but that, again, was kind of how it, it all began. So no, I was still, we were still employed by Hamilton at the time. Um, to give you... A bit of precursor to that. It was the Monday, actually. Happy Real had gone bust on the Sunday night. I arrived at about lunchtime in the mess up at the hall. But the reason that I arrived at lunchtime is I was on the global executive committee of GPT, the company that had bought Hamilton. I mean, they were good people, but it was fair to say that I had a bit of a misunderstanding or falling out with the board um, of what I was trying to do to save the Hamilton platform, the GPT Hamilton platform. I'd come up with a deal which I thought was great for everybody and they told me that I couldn't do it. And I was a little bit upset. And I'd use some Anglo-Saxon language to describe what I thought of the rest of the senior management team of GPT. Um, unfairly, probably. Anyway, I was ejected from the call uh, before I flew to Munich. So when I got to the stand, it wasn't just I just wanted to stop the stand. It was I also made the point of them, A, nobody was coming to visit, but B, um, I was going to get fired. I mean, it was just a question of whether it was three days or ten. And I was right, it was eight days, and they did fire me in person. And so I just said, oh, we might as well go to the pub. And whilst we're in the pub, I explained that you know, my tenure as European CEO of GPT was probably shortly sold. And all my fault. You know, I mean, GPT were, you know, they, they were not in the wrong here. I mean, I was in the wrong. And it became a really good fun afternoon, actually, stroke, early evening stroke, late evening stroke, early morning. Actually went into nearly 9 a.m. The, the following morning. Um, 
sort of the idea of starting again and keeping the team together, keeping the band together, having taken the lessons that you know we'd learned and being you know it had they've been brutal. I mean, the last six months of my tenure as uh, as CEO of GPT and working with the crew, I mean, it was brutal because it became obvious to me in about March two thousand and eight how bad it was going to get. I found when we were having this this night out, the, the focus was all how we would do things differently, and so. They're right. That, that's that's how the business started. We, we've been told that as things proceeded, the business was being run off of your own savings. That even you were selling off your own watch collection to fund the company. Oh, no, I sold absolutely. I avoided bankruptcy by the skin of my teeth. I mean, I'd made a lot of really bad investments. So I made a lot of money in two thousand seven. Lost it all. Um, sold everything I owned. So sold my added a large collection, my watch collection, my car. Sold my house. Owed a lot of money to the tax man. No, I mean, I made a absolute horlicks of 2007 and 8. I mean, I, honestly, I didn't make a good decision from about July 2007 to about July 2009. I, mean, I just had two years off from having a brain by the looks of it as I look back. Uh, yeah, no, I, I sold absolutely everything. Tony actually shared that in the first board meeting where you convened everyone in what sounds like a grotty basement. It was a really grotty basement. I want to say it was 230 Vauxhall Bridge Road. Uh, the basement it, it was... I mean, really, really grotty. <laughs> so we're kind of at rock bottom here. We were laughing a lot then. Yeah, well, it sounds like that. And the the agenda that you had written on everyone's place had any other business as the only item. Oh, that's right, because because it wasn't any business. So you know, everything. It was a genuinely. I thought about having an agenda with just a blank sheet of paper. But I thought I ought to put A or B on there just to start a discussion. To set this, this scene further, let's hear from Noel Mams, co-founder of Europa Capital, on this very topic. And this was, you know, 2007, 2008. And um, times were hard, you know. It's, it's like now, but at least the market had started a bit. Obviously, I was at Europa at the time. We got quite lucky, really, because uh, 2627, we'd raised a new fund. And when Lehman's went bust, we, we had a billion euros of equity to deploy. And that sounds like a wonderful thing. The difficult thing was, like now, when to start doing things again, when to start investing the money. And um, Richard walked in, uh, as ever, probably not underneath, but he was quite um, he was quite positive about the options he had to go to, but thought it was interesting to come and talk to us. And I just said to him, I said... Well, Richard, it's lovely to see you. If all these um, big names, I wouldn't mention now, but all these big names aren't um, able to back you, come back and have a cup of coffee. And about, uh, about I don't know, 10 days later, uh, Theresa rang up and said, can we have that coffee? <laughs> so that was, that was the moment, really. You know, he came with baggage because obviously the whole um, Holton experience was a mess. So that, um, you know, uh, he stayed on, others left, and actually got left holding the can, really, for a an overextended pan-European industrial real estate business. I had two probable issues about backing him. One was most people in the market said he, these guys have lost money for us recently. Why on earth are you thinking of backing them? They do reference checks. Then secondly, we were ourselves deciding when we should start to get into the market. And I just looked. I went to their office and I, I, I saw him and Teresa and, you know, and they'd all bundled together to develop a business uh, and they had no cash flow and they were paying for themselves and so on and so forth. There was an esprit de corps, which is a little unusual to find, really, um, in many places. So the esprit de corps was good. And secondly, uh, his um, brother and others had developed this um, tracker for industrial deals across the UK, which was a step ahead of anybody else. They knew what was going on across the market more than anybody else. I mean, how much do you owe to Europa for, for that early backing? Oh, I mean, so without Westbrook, uh, who did Bob and uh, Europa, I wouldn't be sat here. I mean, you know, and no, you know, without no, there would be no M7. I mean, pure and simple. Um, and look, and he was right. You know, we were we were not massively backable that way in two thousand and eight nine. We weren't the only people who lost money in two thousand eight nine. Um, but you know, I I wore the hair shirt of having lost money because it, it embarrassed me. I mean, you know, it is. We, we didn't have a good crisis. Um, we weren't the only people not having a good crisis, but, you know, I still look back on it and think we probably had a worse crisis than anybody else. And it was part because of our debt management, you know, so we had all these hedging positions, which when the world crashed and interest rates went to one, our positions just got worse. And then so we had the LTV issues and we'd forgotten to sell things. And I mean, we just got a lot wrong. Um, and 
I mean, part of my pitch to Noel was, you know, one of the reasons you should back me is we, we've had a really great end of this out. We've had a really shit time, you know, and we, we've, we've not done well. But we know why we didn't do well. And so what we're going to do this time is going to be, you know, more of the same, but very different. We have our list of what we did right. We have our list of what we did wrong. And, and he, he said to me, you know, he said, you know, it's an unusual time to sort of meet somebody who says, right, you know, the reason you should back me is because I was really, really poor last time around. Um, but that was true. You know, I mean, I was saying we've actually, we, we've understood what we got wrong. So, you know, as we go, go forward, I think our systems are, are better and our approach to risk is going to be very different. I mean, actually, M7 wouldn't have happened, but for a whole load of different types of luck. And M7 throughout its history, you know, we, we've had lots of success and, you know, we've deserved some success, but we've also been really lucky. And I'll give an example. So Project Bob, which was the purchase of Project Barley, which is the deal that Ben Goodbury sold us and UBS sold us and funded by Westbrook. It was called Project Bob. It was called Project Bob only internally because Bob stood for the bag of bollocks. And it was a terrible portfolio really was but we bought it very cheaply and we managed to convince i said we hugh fraser david Everett, etc um, managed to convince uh nationwide building society to, to lend on this portfolio as well as the westbrook equity and about three months in i got a phone call from a guy called bryce glover who ran the commercial arm of the nationwide building society he said oh, Richard, you don't know me my name's bryce glover but um we've just lent you 35 million or 40 million whatever it was to buy this portfolio? I said, yes, that's true. He said, I discovered it's called Project Bob. And I said, yeah, that's true. He said, worse, I've discovered Bob stands for the bag of bollocks. And I said, yeah, that's true too. He said, can I come in and just find out why we lend this to them? I said, yeah, do come in. Anyway, so he came in and I presented our business plan, our strategy, asset by asset. Unfortunately, three months in, we'd actually delivered on quite a lot of it. And he went, you know, that's really impressive. Um, would you look at our bad book and get involved in managing our bad book? Um, and we basically massively improved the nationwide's recovery. And we got this long-term management workout. And that deal basically just got and seven going. But had we not called it the bag of bollocks, had Bryce not discovered that we called it, he probably would never have come for the, ever come back. And if he hadn't come for the meeting, he would have never done VBRI. And it was the combination of that deal, the VBRI deal, that meant that when I was talking to Oaktree and to Starwood and to HIG, people were beginning to take notice of what we were doing. People were looking at 9 to 12, you know, 09 to, to 2012, and what we'd done there and the systems we'd built and the infrastructure we built, and that was beginning to resonate. And so suddenly the Starwoods, the Oaktrees were going, actually, you know, you're quite an interesting business and you've got quite a good team and actually you've delivered some good returns, you know, above market average. Let's see what we can do with you. And we just got going as an entity. And I mean, you know, an example of how lucky we are. And this is actually my favorite story about M7. So in August 2013, I got a phone call from Mark Donner, who ran um, Westbrook. And he phoned me and said, Richard, we would like to fire you. From the I mean, it was very pleasant. Uh, fire you from the management of a company, Troy Venture, we had called Eastburn because we built our own asset management team. And he said, you, we might sell it. And I said, sell it. All right. I said, I'll buy it. And he said, Richard, you don't have any money. I went, yeah, well, we'll sort that out. So we had a million pounds at this point in seven. A million pounds in total. I mean, we were employing 20 old people, 25 people. The entire bank balance, the entire organization, a million pounds. So I, I agreed that we would, we would sign a non-refundable deposit with Westbrook. Can you imagine? Non-refundable. <laughs> this million pounds, which would allow us to buy this portfolio. And I convinced my partners this was a good idea. So we had eight weeks to do the deal. So we paused. So, I don't, know, I don't know what the value of the portfolio was, 45 million pounds. We paid them a million quid and we looked at each other and said, where are we going to get the money from? Know, we better work on that. But I knew it was a really good deal. So I said, right, we're going to issue a bond at 15%. We're going to raise 20 million pounds at 15%. And everybody went, okay. So AJ's brother had sold his business and moved to Monaco. And we discovered this thing called the Tuesday Lunch Club, which is where the rich English folk of Monaco get together on a Tuesday, basically get shit-faced. And once a month, they invite somebody to come and pitch a business to them. Nobody's ever raised any money from this lunch that we didn't know. So we agreed to pay our £5,000 to pay for that rosé and go to this lunch, and I pitched this idea. So we, we, we it was tumbleweed. It was a disaster. And got on the plane back, and I'm like, oh, that's not going very well. Anyway, two days later, 
I was speaking to my mum, and I'd met a guy down there who will remain name, name, nameless. But I was talking to my mum, and she said, well, where have you been? I said, well, I was in Monaco earlier on this week. She said, well, what were you doing there? I said, I was raising money. I said, how did it go? I said, terribly. <laughs> it was really, really bad. I said, I met this guy, Mr. X. And she went, Mr. X. And I went, yeah. And um, obviously, uh, Mr. X isn't his real name. He's, got, he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's very private. And I said, yeah. He said, does he look like this? And I said, yeah, I suppose. He said, he's about 50, which seven or eight years ago he wasn't. I said, yeah, I suppose. He said, do you know he went out with your sister 30 years ago? So I sent Mr. X an email and went, I, you know, here's the rest of the information. I appreciate it. It's probably not for you. But you know, kind of guys, Richard. P.S. Jane says, hello. He phones up literally 30 seconds later and went, you're Jane Cross, brother. And I went, yeah. I said, my God, how is she? We must come back now. Let's see what we can do together. Now, he ended up putting three or four million quid into this pod. But it turns out that he's one of the most successful investors in, in Monaco. And so all the other guys decided to come in on the back fin. So had my sister not done whatever she did in 1979 at the Suffolk Hunt Ball, M7 wouldn't exist. Now, you can't buy that luck. Now, as a result of that deal, we raised 20 million. We got Oak Tree to give us some investment finance. We got Santander to give us some debt. We did this thing called Project Bear, where we merged Eastburn, which is this deal that we bought from, from Westbrook, and this company called Ace, which was distinctly not Ace, which we bought from uh, Deutsche Bank and Kendi Wilson, because it was a bad debt. We merged the two things together and we created our property company. Um, and we made about 18 or 20 million quid out of that the following year. And it was all that money we made, which then allowed us to expand into Europe. And so we invested it all into co-investments and to building out the, the platform. But we would never have had the money had we not done that. Well, look, there's a series of just wonderful coincidences and luck plays a part. Um, I want to play something now, which is uh, Tony Edgeley talking about your early approach to investor meetings. The very first meeting I took him along to was with a Belgian insurance company. And we walk into this room and opposite us in the boardroom with this massive glass table and this huge glass bowl full of glass beads in the middle of the table were sat maybe eight of the greyest, dullest Belgian institutional men that you could imagine, caricatures of themselves. And we went through the meeting. And at one point, through a particularly sort of tricky moment, in order to slightly relieve his own anxiety, he reached out and put his hand into the glass bowl in the middle of this glass table full of glass beads, picked one up, and popped it in his mouth, thinking, as he did, that this was a mint. And I don't know whether you've ever been in a big echoey boardroom, but the sound of glass on enamel is deafening. It's entirely true. The meeting didn't go very well. And I was like, I thought, oh, I've got to put something in my mouth, because, you know, that's what's happening. And I ate a marble. Well, we didn't eat it. I just sort of <laughs> watched me as I licked their marble. And then I had to put it back in the bowl. It was, it was excruciating. <laughs> Dare I guess that uh, no money was raised that day? Not a bean, not a marble. One of my five least favourite business memories. Yeah, I know the, the Eurostar journey. And Tony was looking at me and going, you tried to eat a marble. I never did, but it looks, it looks so like a mint. I really thought it was a mint. And when you crunch a marble, I don't know if you ever tried to crunch a marble, it's shocking how hard it is. So I nearly lost a couple of teeth. Tell me about the key ingredient to the successes of M7. I think there are four or five. I mean, we're very focused on data. We're very focused on teamwork. We're very focused on detail. And I think, you know, having learned the lessons that we learned, we spent a lot of time talking, analyzing, trying to intellectualize what we do, trying to understand the risk profile that we take. So despite the fact that, you know, we've, I think we've been in the top, top quartile, I guess, the top decile of returns of managers, we've actually been really risk averse. I know that sounds extraordinary. So, you know, we, we bought a lot of risk diversification, we bought below construction costs. We've had all these golden rules for investing. Um, and, I, you know, it's performed well. And I look at what we do, and we've been told, you know, when we decided to invest in Dutch offices in 2013, which is down to Josh Short, actually, I went to a, uh, a conference, slightly hungover, actually. I, mean, I don't want people to think that I drink all the time because I don't, but I was pretty hungover. I was just asleep at the back, really. Joss gave a speech and he joked, you know, the famous joke, you know, the problem with the Dutch office market is structurally under demolished. Got a massive buff and he killed the Dutch office market personally for about two years. 
And I flew to the Netherlands literally the next day and went, right, we're going to buy Dutch offices. Everybody went to me, you're mad. And I went, well, how bad can this be? I mean, so the Netherlands is a proper country, right? It has overdeveloped its office market. There's no question. There's more supply than demand currently. But, you know, people were talking about the emerging market of the Netherlands. You go, that's bananas. It's not an emerging market. It's just had a bad recession. We started buying Dutch offices, and we'd raised all these funds to buy Dutch offices. But we were buying things at literally 15, 20 pounds a square foot of 20% yields. And I was looking at it, and genuinely, the land is worth more than I paid. And I could just knock the building down. I mean, and this is a country that needs land so bad and digs the stuff out of the sea. So you kind of think, well, at some point, this has been discounted to such a level. That's not a risk. And I was being told there would never be any market. And of course, what happened to the Dutch office market is similar to what's happened to the UK one, particularly regionally. You know, lots of old office blocks have become residential or student accommodation, etc. So it's a kind of shrunk. So um, Joss was right. It was structured under Morris Briggs, and it never got to Morris, it just got turned into other stuff. The economy improved, and you know, Dutch offices, we've probably made more money out of that than we have in industrial. Um, but I don't think that those sort of decisions that people say, well, that was a risky decision, I don't think it was. But I don't think a lot of people were just paying attention because there are other bigger issues to, to deal with. And I just looked at that and he went, I think um, that's a one-way bet. And we felt that way about industrial states in 2009, which hadn't been the area that our, our expertise was. And we think that industrial states have been killed in 2007-8, totally unfairly. And if you think about what's happened since, I think we were right. Yeah. I mean, we were right in 2007. We just don't know it. From an investment perspective, the thing that we look at as a house is we're trying to find sectors where we think the you know other investors have maybe got it wrong, but where the supply-demand dynamic um, is actually going to be in favour of demand. And if you have that, you know, you have less supply and more demand. You know, that's just economics 101. I think, look, when I look at, at, at M7, clearly there are, there are several similar businesses out there. There are none that have laughed as much as we have. And that's the thing that, that, that I'm most proud of. We've had we've laughed a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot of laughter, and I I do think it is there's a there's a culture in the firm that's uh, that's it's kind of unique, and I want to play for you some of your team talking about the culture at M7 because I would suggest that more than anything is the key ingredient to to the success. I'd agree with that. So we would describe ourselves as a as a social club with a work problem. Now we're the other way around. We're a working club with a social problem. Um, <laughs> We are a, a very weird hybrid of family, friend, and colleague. I think it's amazing. It feels like in that order. Yeah. Yeah. And how that has we kept that going. Yeah. And it's the core partners. I yeah. mean, I know I speak for all my friends. I would do anything for these people. And so that is not defined by work. Mm. That's defined by much, much mm. stronger bond. Well, that's just lovely to hear. You know, they are wonderful people, um, and we are close friends. We holiday together. Um, work to, to, together. I mean, I've always had the view, by the way, across the entire organisation, is that you know you you spend more time at work than you do almost anywhere else. If you don't like the people you work with, life is a very miserable place. And due to my dad and my mum, actually, you know, I have lots and lots of brothers and sisters, and we're a very close family. And my mum and dad taught me that having fun is singularly the most important thing of, of all. So you know, we we take work seriously. But uh, Tony actually used the phrase, you know, you behave inappropriately, appropriately. And I, I, I like that phrase. We, we've had a lot of fun. I think we've done a lot of good things. But we've never forgotten that, you know, if it's not fun, it's no good. Let's talk a little bit about motivation. Um, we have a, a clip from Noel Mams who um, has something to say on how he, he motivated you in the early days. I love this story. We went to look at this unit in the Midlands in the second portfolio, and uh, we were focusing on, you know, multi-less industrial, which were units of between 1,500 and 2,500 feet. So this was all really good. And then he came up with this big unit, which is about seven or 8,000 feet in, in this West Midlands industrial state. And uh, I said, this is off the plan. This is not what we said we'd do. Why on earth do you want to acquire this unit? He said, well, it's going to be good, so we're going to break it up. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Blah, blah, blah. Good sales pitch. And I looked at him and I said, okay, okay, then we will let you, we'll let you have six or 12 months to let this unit, okay? And after that, I'm going to rent a caravan and you're going to live in the caravan in the unit until it's left. And he looked at me and said, deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 
we actually ended up selling the building a bit ahead of forecast. We, we, we got quite a bit, so we, we made a decent. It was in Africa, um, and we ended up selling it um, earlier. But I was terrified that he would actually keep to that. So, you know, we, we amended the business plan. We, we made a very good return on it. <laughs> Look, let's move from your office family to your home family. Here's a little something from the M7 team on what your family mean to you. A lot of that is rooted in, you know, his background in this wonderful thespian family who were larger than life, you know, father larger than life, his mother even, you know, in her later years. I mean, I remember a wonderful moment at the the premiere of Dad's Army, you know, with the, the red carpet and his mother, who was, she must have been just six months away from passing away, but in a wheelchair with a new long gown, just basking in the lights and, and you know the, the photographs being taken it was it was her moment in the sun again yes. and that if you grow up in that sort of environment it does set you apart or it's certainly different from and isn't really a normal family whatever normal means mm. I mean it's quite an except they're quite an exceptional family there was nothing normal about my childhood at all but it was a hoot my mom and dad I have six brothers and sisters and we're still very close I think, you know, the greatest legacy that my parents left, you know, they left behind a family that is still very close. They taught me the value of being social and of family. Um, but, you know, family doesn't have just to be blood, you know, and I, I take the, the family of M7 very seriously. You know, I mean, and we tried very hard to make sure that it is an organization that looks after its own. And, you know, and you know, there have been a couple of occasions where, uh, people have had to leave the organisation uh, for various reasons, but in both cases, we've been sure that we were incredibly generous to the people that, for reasons slightly out of their control, that they had to do to, to depart. I absolutely believe that you've got to look after a your people, b your organisation. One of the things that I'm most proud of about our organisation is nobody's been furloughed. We've not made any redundancies as a result of COVID. There are no salary cuts. I mean, you know, that's hitting the bottom line of the business, obviously, but, you know, we decided as a group very early on that the one thing we would protect above all else during this crisis is is the team. And, you know, if you do that, when we come out, and we will come out of the other side, I think it positions you well to be able to, to sort of regrow. But, you know, the, the, the company, I think, is a unique company, but it is, it's not just from the top, it's all the way down the organization so that's not just the partners it's the people that have you know been with us for a few years i mean cast has been with me now for seven years cast you know i couldn't exist without cast tell us about uh the the, the ring your family ring the ring <laughs> this is my dad's ring my dad was genuinely one of the greatest men who ever lived um obviously he wrote dad's army and Heidi high and lots of other things uh, but he was a great man and a genuine leader of men. And you don't meet them very often. My favorite story of him is when he told me that I was, you know, I didn't have what it takes to be an actor, but he said it with a very harsh message, said with kindness and love, and I totally understood. And you know, my career would not have happened without him. Anyway, 2011, he died, uh, aged 89, having had a fabulous life. And being dad, he, he, he died just wonderfully. So he'd had his best day. He'd been quite ill the last year of his life. He was 89. And he, he was in his holiday house in Portugal. <laughs> he got out to dinner and apparently got quite shit-faced with dinner, lunch with mum. They'd had a really nice day. He'd come back, watched a bit of telly. He'd finished a book that he was reading. And he went and sat in his dressing room and just died. I mean, no fuss, nothing. Just sat down and died. Um, and anyway, he left a letter for mum. I think he knew that he was going to die. Um, and so he left a letter for mum. And in it was an instruction for his signature. And he asked that it be left to me. And not for any other reason that... He hadn't seen me repair the damage that I'd created in 2008, 2009, after I lost everything. And he said, you know, he wanted me to know that he'd had total faith that I would make a success of myself again. And this was a, a hiatus. And he wanted me to wear the ring just to, sorry, he could be there. He would help guide me. Anyway, um, the ring got given to me about six months after his death. And I met my mom uh, for lunch in the Woolsey was her favourite place. And I arrived at lunch, maybe one o'clock, she was absolutely, to coin a phrase, gazeboed. I think a couple of bottles of champagne in with her very good friend, Tim Brown, who was the restaurant and they were having a great time, and I arrived. She was a very good person. Darling! As I sat down, the entire restaurant stopped and looked at me. And she, she shouted at me, but I mean, not, I mean, very lovingly. You know, the, the 
your father had a bit awkward that you'd had the 2008 you had, but the dad had to believe him, would I wear this ring? Anyway, since the moment that I bought this ring, because M7 was sort of stumbling to thing to thing to thing 2012, literally the moment since I've worn this ring, M7 has been blessed with nothing but good luck. So um, it's we, we, we say that if the ring is ever lost, the company's going to be sold instantaneously. It's just, you know, I'm retiring straight away. Direct correlation. We, we've heard some great stories about uh, your CEO, David, crawling around nightclubs after this ring. Twice, yeah. So the ring was a little bit too big for me. And so the reason I wear out my right hand is slightly bigger than my left hand. And so I used to wear out my left hand. But I'd be tired of fly off. And so there are two nightclubs, yeah. This is the mark of a uh, of a good colleague when they're willing to uh, search floors of dance floors to, uh, to, to 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 find your ring. Almost everyone we've spoken to you has described you as generous to a fault. Tell us about your incubation work and your your charity work and what this means to you. Um, think about generosity, um, and I learned this from Dad again. Is you know you 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 have to mean it, and so we're, I mean I'm. I'm relatively shy about my um, stuff that I do for charity because, you know, I don't think it is if you shout about it a lot, I think you're sending the wrong message because then you're doing it for you rather than for people. But I mean, I, I have a very strong belief that, you know, the country is politically moving in, and I, I won't stay on serious stuff for long, but I have this very strong belief that the country is moving politically in the wrong direction. The work that I am involved in up here is about um, encouraging local enterprise. It's about social mobility. It's about education. I, mean, I really do believe those of us who have been more fortunate may have been so blessed uh, in so many ways. We have an obligation, um, yeah, a real obligation, not just to pay taxes, but to get involved and to, and to help the community because the government's not going to. The things that I do are done at a local level to, I hope, try and improve things because my father once said to me that the best way to improve anything is to look after the universe around you. And if you look after the universe around you, the people in that universe will look after the universe around them. So that's it. Um, well, look, we've been told that you're unlikely to retire anytime soon. That's a total fib. No, I, I can't wait. So would you You would look forward then to be marooned on this desert island? Well, it depends how many people I'm allowed to be with. So well, let, let's fast forward then to you thinking about escaping this island as a real estate investor. What what markets are interesting at the moment? You know, what are you going to be thinking about when you return to your real estate pursuits? So there are, I mean, there are two very clear themes for us: regional offices. Uh, you know, we don't think the office market is going to die, but we are very sceptical of the big mega cities because affordability is going to play a big role. People are going to want to commute, and people's behaviour is going to change. People want to be together. Um, there is one other play that you know we, we're very excited about, which is retail warehousing. I won't bore you, but say to me, retail warehousing, Emily, just say retail warehousing. Retail warehousing. Now don't say retail. Warehousing. Hmm. Think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. They're warehouses. So if their planning is an industrial use. People will pay 5% yields and just bid through the notes for them. But because their, their consent is retail, which is necessarily, by the way, an enhanced consent, uh, people just like, well, give it away. And in the world where shopping centers are going to be totally different things to what they are now, and a lot of the regional shopping centers just aren't going to survive. But the retailers will, re- retail hasn't disappeared. People forget Amazon's retailer, just the, the, the way that retail is going to be delivered is changing. Um, and I see retail warehouses, A, you know, the home bases, the, the B&Qs, they operate there, um, a few other uses like gyms, etc. And you've seen Amazon now start to buy a couple of these retail warehouse parks just to reposition them. So that's going to take supply out. But next, if you read next report and accounts, the only stores that are doing well are those that are on retail warehouse parks. Why? Because there's a warehouse where they can store the stuff that needs to be collected from the click and collect model. And I look at this and I go, do you know what? That is going to be the future. Um, I'm told it's a contrarian view. I don't think it is. Because the fact is, it's still a warehouse. If you think about a warehouse, it's a single story, portal frame, really low side side cover. It's you know underpinned by, by, by line value. A lot of the stuff that we're buying is at 10, 12 pounds a square foot rents, eight and a half percent yields. And I look at that and I go, do you know what? That's my Dutch office play, I think. Um, and by the way, very few people agree with me. So um you know, maybe I'm mad, but I look at that and I think that's definitely going to be the the, the sector that we are, the, the, the we're going to be focused on because I, I know more wrong about this than I was about Dunlop. So, us, we, 
than we were about Dutch offices or industrial states in 2009. Um, if, if you could go back and give advice to your 18, 21, 25-year-old self, what, what would it be? Oh, um, don't take things personally. You know, very few things are meant personally. I'm used to take things so personally. I have slights. And, by the way, it happens to everybody, but we're basically because I took things personally. And actually, don't. Because in the reality, you know, there are so many more important things in life. You know, remember that most people are, are good people deep down. You know, you might disagree with them, but most people are good. And, you know, friendships and family are the most important things. And if somebody does something mean or says something, it, you know what, they probably didn't mean it. So that would be the advice that I would give. The 50-year-old me would say, I think what I've learned is that the majority of things are not meant. Well, look, we're going to end with a clip from Tony Edgley, who summed you up beautifully. As he leaves, you're left thinking to yourself, that was unusual. And unusual is good in a world of monochrome cut out stereotypical businessmen, you can't help but to be attracted to the unusual. And when the unusual is backed up by a team and an infrastructure, and he is passionate about his team, but you can't be unusual and win the hearts and minds of some of the most sceptical, sharp-toothed private equity businesses in the world, and literally have them eating out of the palm of your hand. All of that can only arise if the frivolity, the unusual, the irreverent, the magical world of Richard Croft is completely grounded in data, systems, protocol, hard work, and brilliant, brilliant judgment calls to be a real entrepreneur, you sort of only have to be right 51% of the time. That's what the saying is, isn't it? But, but Richard, Richard massively smashes that stat. Unusual is good in a world of monochrome, the magical world of Richard Croft. Let's leave it at that. Richard Croft, Crofty, thank you very much. Uh, Emily, thank you so much. I, I feel very humbled from that bribe that I paid Tony was money really, really well spent. So uh, thank you very much. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Bohill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bohill Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bohillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.